Thank you, Valley Bible Church, and good singing this morning. And we should pray at this time. Shall we do that? Father and our God, we do declare all glory belongs to Christ, for he will rule and reign forever. He does from heaven, but will one day bring his kingdom to this earth. And we are grateful that we are part of that throng that will sing to you forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. To you belong the glory, and you alone, and you will not share your glory with another. So we pray that we would see Christ shining through the word this morning, through the law, through the gospel, and into our minds and into our hearts. And I pray all these things to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to imagine for just a moment that we are not Valley Bible Church, but that we are the church in Ephesus. And uh, we have had the Apostle Paul as a pastor teacher for three years. He was here for three years, and he taught us the Word of God, and he taught us together when we came as a congregation. And he taught from house to house. That is, he was in your house. You had him over for a meal. And he taught you and your wife and your children, maybe your extended family, the truths of the gospel, the truths of the Christian faith. This great apostle that we knew personally and was in our houses, can you imagine what it would be like to have such a Bible teacher, what a man of God, a historic uh, personage in our, in our homes? And after a couple of years, he left us, and then he wrote to us, after three years rather, and a couple of years later, he wrote to us a letter, um, the letter to the Ephesians, one of the greatest New Testament books, uh, other than Romans, a, a, a treatise on theology in which he tells us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. And he teaches us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in this great letter, and that he raised us up with Christ and made us alive together with Christ by his grace. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and that our salvation would be on display for the rest of eternity. We would sing his praises. Then in this letter, he teaches us how we are to live out this truth, how we are to love one another, how we are to be a church, how we are to live by the Holy Spirit, and how we are to have marriages that are godly and families that are godly, and how we are to, to be in the spiritual battle and put on the whole armor of God. And he wrote us, that letter, having been three years with us, and then a couple of years later, we've gone off the rails. We're teaching falsehood. Teaching other than what he delivered to us. Teaching false things, silly things, mindless things. How does this happen? For it did happen in Ephesus. How did it happen so quickly? When we lose love as the goal of everything that we teach, then we will teach anything. And we need to teach 
everything that has been delivered to us with that purpose of transforming people's lives who love God with all their hearts and minds and souls and love one another and love our community. And this is what happened in Ephesus. Some in the church were misusing God's word and they had fallen aside from it. They were misusing God's law, his very law. And so today, what we're going to look at is the truth about the law. What is it? What is its purpose today, the truth about the law? Paul told Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, and I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read just a few verses, verses 8 through 11. And so would you honor God by standing as we read his word? And would you pay close attention also to what he says to us? 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, the word of God. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And God's people said, Please be seated if you would. The law. What is the truth about the law? The first truth we want to see is this. The law is good. The law is good. It gets a bad rap as something that uh, Jesus came to do away with because it was bad and it was, it was a horrible thing. But he says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good. We, meaning Timothy, you and I know this. And those others of the apostles and those others who have been trained in the gospel and have been trained in sound teaching, the historic teaching of the faith, we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully, which tells us some were not using it properly. They were misusing it. And so therefore, its misuse was bad, but it's Use proper in the law itself is good. This is a bit of a digression for Paul. He had just said in verses 6 and 7, I'll read it to you. For some men, straying from these things, that is right teaching and the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some strayed from these things. They've turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they don't even understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They do not understand what they're talking about. And Paul is saying that they don't even understand the purpose of the law. He says, but but I say to you, we know that the law is good. They're teaching something else. We don't know everything that they were teaching, but they were misusing the law, that is to be certain. And this is a play on words when he says the law is good when it's used lawfully, a lawfully lawful use of the, of, the, of the law. So just listen to a couple of passages. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
What was he meditating on? What was the psalmist meditating on? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what he was meditating on and said, oh, I love this. Psalm 119, 165, those who love your law have great peace. Nothing causes them to stumble because of the stability and the goodness of the law. Psalm 19, 7 through 11, I'll just read it to you. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist points to the purpose of the law. It's a warning, yes, but also it is a source of great blessings when kept. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Holy means that which is set apart, that which is different, that which is unique. There is no sin, there is no darkness, there is no imperfections in holiness, and it always speaks of the, the holiness of God and His character. He is pure in His essence. The essential character quality of God is probably holiness, pure in all of His ways. But He says this of the law. <clears throat> he says holy twice. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. Boom, boom, boom. One, two, three. It is good. The law is good. Four things about the law. The law is God's word. That's why it is good. And misusing the law is a very, very serious offense. And, and God is holy, and this is his word, and he has given his word. The, the, all of the Old Testament and the prophets, which all pointed to Jesus, they were his inspired word. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And the law is God's word. Number two, the law is holy as God is holy. If God is holy and God speaks, then what he speaks is holy. What he speaks is pure. What he speaks is true. What he speaks is, is, is without error. What he speaks is his true holy word because it comes from his very character. Number three, the law reveals the requirement of holy living. I've said before and I say again, I love the book of Exodus. I love reading it. And you get into all these details of all the minutia of you can't do this and you can't do this and all these crazy things of the law. <clears throat> But I like it because at various points throughout the book, he says, for you shall be holy as I am holy. And the purpose of these laws in the book of Leviticus and in all the law is to show us that we are to be different. He was showing his people, he is a holy God and you are to be a holy people. 
You're not to be like the other nations. You're not to worship other gods. You are to be a holy people because you are set apart. And the law reveals the requirement of holy living. What does God require of his people? Number four, the law reveals sin. And so the need for salvation shows us our sin. Therefore, it shows us the need for salvation. So because with this code of holy living comes the realization that it is impossible to live up to the law's demands. We see that when we read it. I can't do that. I can't keep all those things. Who could? As it turns out, no one could. And again, the law gets a bad rap that Jesus came to do away with the law. The law isn't bad. It's the misuse of the law that is bad. And he came to fulfill the law. And the law and the prophets all teach about the coming Messiah. So meant as a code for ethical living and holiness, as well as an indicator for us that we are hopelessly unable to live a life acceptable to God by that standard. Therefore, the necessity of coming to a place where we must throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he provided the sacrificial system to come to him over and over and over again to make sacrifice for sin that once one day would once for all be paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. So the law humbles us because the standard of holiness is unachievable by any of us. That's good. The law is good. The second truth about the law is that the law is not a means of salvation. The law is not the mode of salvation. The law is not the road to salvation. The law is not the means by which we are justified before God. He says in the first part of 9, Realizing the fact or knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. It does not exist for the righteous. You know why? The righteousness are not saved by their righteousness. The righteous are not saved by their righteousness. The righteous are justified by faith and not the law. In Romans, when uh, in Romans, Paul says this: "There is none righteous, not even one. Not one one person has been righteous, not even one." Then he goes on to say, "For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." And so he, this is the starting point of Paul's treatise on justification by faith. And what's the first building block of justification by faith? There is none righteous, not even one. And then he goes on to talk about uh, justification by faith and obedience to the law. Yes, it leads to blessings, but it never leads to salvation. Justification by faith is the act of God whereby he declares you to be righteous based upon your faith in Christ. And in so doing, he credits you with the righteousness of Christ that is not your own. He gives to your account the perfection, the holiness, the righteousness of Christ, because we can't meet the standard. 
And then we are clothed in that garment of light and the righteousness of Christ so that when he sees me and you, he doesn't see our lives dripping with carnality and sinfulness, but he sees our standing in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank God for that. If it were not so, so we would be horribly lost. This is the good news. It's October, reminds us, it does me anyway, Martin Luther, that time of year. This man who led the Reformation, who recaptured the historic biblical doctrine of justification by faith, and he went to battle with the Catholic Church. He said, I cannot recant. You can do whatever you want to me, but I cannot recant this truth. Because that central doctrine of the faith, and it is the central doctrine of salvation and Christianity, that we are justified by faith alone, was lost for a time. And the Catholic Church has yet to recant themselves and to return to that historic truth, which was taught by Jesus, handed down to the apostles, and handed down to us. So again... The law was never meant as a means of salvation. So those considered righteous are only righteous in Christ. So therefore, the law doesn't doesn't help us. Paul would say in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. What's the point? If you can be righteous on your own, if you can live the law and you can pull yourself up and you can live it to a point where you can stand before God and you can say, God, I am justified. And he says, "Okay, good enough. He never says good enough. Because we will never be good enough. He has to see us in Christ. But if we could and we can't, there's no point. There's no point to the death of Christ. Why are we? Why do we even talk about it? Well, just get on with trying to be a good person, right? Galatians 3:21 through 24. I'll just read it to you. It says, "Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But it's not." But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, our teacher to lead us to Christ so that, he says, we may be justified by faith. Our lesson is very simple. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Salvation, Old Testament, New Testament, it's always been saved by grace through faith. Some people think, well, they were saved by works in the Old Testament, and they're saved by grace through faith in the New Testament. No, 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 no. Abraham was justified by faith before the law was ever written. Part of the whole point of Paul's treatise on justification is that the law cannot save anyone, never was meant to, and salvation has always been by grace through faith in Christ alone. So we know the truth that the law is good, and we have the truth that the law is not a means of salvation. 
But then the third thing that we see is that the law reveals our sinfulness. When we look at the law, it shows that we are sinful. It shows the sin in our lives. It calls us out and shines a light on the darkness of our lives. For he says this in chapters 9 and 10, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. Interesting list, isn't it? We're going to go through it just very briefly, but I want you to, as we look at this list, rather than seeing this as a, a way to indict the world and the darkness of the world out that, we need to look at where, where am I on the list? I want, to look, I want you to look for yourself on the list. I see myself, we all see ourselves, because there's none righteous. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Paul uses these synonyms throughout to show the, the depth and the breadth of sin, that it's not just any one thing. And it, it in many ways follows the Ten Commandments. Maybe not exactly, but um, um, in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, and then the Ten Commandments. The first four, about no other gods before me, no idols, do not take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath. Those four commandments of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, deal with our relationship with God. Now, maybe we can't line up lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, exactly. But the last five line up pretty good. Last six, rather. Last five, excuse me. Keep, line up pretty good. But he's definitely referring to and tipping his hat at the Old Testament law. He says, uh, the lawless... And the rebellious, lawless literally means someone who has no moral code, someone doesn't have the law, they don't care about the law. And rebellious is a word that can mean independent, one who refuses to submit to that law or to submit to authority. So I don't need God, I don't need someone telling me what to do. We're all independent, we are Americans, right? We're Westerners, we're Northwesterners even. And so we're independent, and yet when we apply that to spiritual things, it gets us in trouble because, we, and you've heard people, and I've heard people, I don't believe in God. I don't need, believe in some God who's telling me how to live. But he is real. The next two, he, they, these come in, in couplets of two. Ungodly and sinners. The, the opposite of ungodly is godly, and it's a word that Paul will use in the pastoral epistles over and over again. It's a very important word that for someone who becomes like God. And so the ungodly are those who don't really care. And sinners is the common word for sin, to miss the mark. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We miss his perfection Holy, unholy, and profane. We've already seen that the law is holy. But those who are opposed to the sacred and those who profane the holy, that they think that the, the things holy are just like anything else. That's where the word profanity comes from, that people don't care about God and honoring his name, taking his name in vain, or honoring things that are holy and sacred, and they just poo-poo it all as just silliness. Father killers and mother killers. Um, 
It's a compound word. Both of those are just one word, but compound words. And I think a better translation is probably this. Those who beat their fathers and those who beat their mothers. Because that pro- that uh, one of the compounds can mean that. And I think it probably means that because the next on the list is murderers. Of course, killing your mother or you killing your father is pretty bad. As bad as it can get. But to strike your father, to get in a fight with him, to slap your mother in the face, to get to that point where you dishonor your your parents that much that you strike out at them physically, perhaps even to kill them, that's certainly not honoring the commandment to honor your father and mother. In fact, in the Old Testament, and Jesus said this, that just to speak ill of parents was considered a serious offense. Just to speak ill of them. And then murderers, of course, thou shalt not kill. Pretty self-explanatory. A little tip for you. Don't kill anybody, okay? It's not, it's not good. Don't, don't do that. But Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that if you call your brother a fool, if you have anger and hatred in your heart, guess what you've done? You have killed your brother. You're guilty of murder. He, in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes beyond just the actions, because we look for the loopholes, and he goes to our heart and to our, our attitudes And as you can say, well, I never killed anybody. I never committed adultery. But in our hearts we may, and we're guilty just as well. And so he says the immoral and the homosexuals. In other words, immorality goes beyond just adultery. The word immorality here is the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And I I have to tell you, I said this to the men on Friday night uh, in a different way, but we have been through a pandemic, right, COVID-19? We are in a pandemic against which COVID pales in significance, and it is called pornography. And it has captured our culture, and has captured the hearts and minds of many men, even in this room. Pornography is a blight on our culture. Abortion, murder of children is, an, a, a, uh, is a blight on our culture. And he goes beyond just immorality to what Jesus taught us was, it, uh, guys, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you've committed adultery. But women are not let off the hook, are they? Because if you're reading the romance novels or there's a favorite actor and you're always looking at his picture and you're dreaming and and thinking about having a relationship with that person, guess what? You're just as guilty as men looking at pornography. But then he adds the word homosexuals to show, again, that it's not just committing adultery. In any kind of sexual relationship outside of the bonds of marriage is immorality. And he shows how far it can go with homosexuality. And many have attacked this word here, homosexuality, claiming that Paul was speaking only of male prostitutes. So you can't be a male prostitute, but you can be a homosexual. That's not what he was saying. It goes against everything else that the Scripture teaches. This is a classic example of what we call eisegesis. Exegesis is what we as pastors and teachers are supposed to do. We study the text to, to lead out and draw out the meaning of the text 
according to grammar and history and the, the setting in which it was written. So we lead out in exegesis that meaning. Eisegesis is reading into the text your own biases, your own preconditions, your own presuppositions. And when you begin with a secular worldview, then you start with the world's view of homosexuality, and then you read into the text what the world's view is. When we start with the scriptures, we must let the scriptures take us where they will. Because if it is thus saith the Lord, then we are led into God's view of the world and his word, not the world's view of God and his word. The next on the list is kidnappers. Interesting, huh? Well, I never kidnapped anybody, so big deal, right? He's talking about slave dealers here. He's talking about stealing people. He's talking about what happened. You know, we're going to talk later on uh, about slavery a little bit because Paul will deal with this with Timothy. And, and yeah, yes, slavery is a blight on, on our nation, and there was a, we have a, a bad... Uh, history, uh, there's a little bit different biblical view, and we'll talk about that as we get there. But one thing is curtain, for certain, it is wrong to steal people. It's wrong to steal a person's life and murdering them. It's wrong also to steal a human being and enslave them. It's horrible. And that was happening at this time. And so... There were some that were maybe seeing this as their sin because they were in the slave trade. It's not a good thing. Unfortunately, I think in our culture today, we are so occupied with the slavery of the past that we're missing the slavery that is right under our noses. Human trafficking. Human trafficking is this. Slave trading, stealing people in our own community. Boys and girls, young women, young men are entrapped. They are taken into slavery. They are stolen. Human trafficking, it's happening. And for some reason, I don't know why, but Spokane is a hotbed of this. HRC Ministries, which is now known as HC Ministries, Helping Captives, is a ministry that's nearby, and we uh, wholeheartedly endorse them. And we should do whatever we can do to, to be aware of and to stop people stealing human trafficking in our own midst. And most of it is for sexual purposes. How could anything be even worse? The next on the list, the, the next pair is this. Liars and perjurers shall not bear false witness. Liars and perjurers. You shouldn't lie about something to your spouse or at work or at church or to your neighbors. You shouldn't lie about things. The perjury is when you go into a court of law and you put your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And then you lie. You know that uh, perjury is rarely prosecuted in our culture because Oftentimes, you can't prove it. Do you think perjury is pretty common? Oh, yes. 
see it all the time, people who go before Congress and, and uh, subcommittees and they're, they're giving their testimony and they lie through their teeth. You've seen the, the, the show trials that are on TV and people get in the, in the witness stand and they lie through their teeth. How did we get there as a culture where it's okay to do that? To save your skin or to save someone else's skin instead of swearing to your hurt. Perjury is a problem. And then he has the catch-all phrase, and anything else, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. There are no loopholes for us. There's no loophole for us to say, well, I didn't see my sin listed up there. No, he says anything else, whatever else, that does not comport with sound teaching. Here's the thing. Here's the lesson. We must use the law for its good and intended purpose to convict us of our sin. We must use the law properly for its good and intended purpose, and it does have a good and intended purpose, to point us to our sin, to convict us of our sin. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Might say, well, I don't, you know, I only, I only, I only see myself one time on that list. That's pretty good, right? Do I get a score of ninety percent? No, none righteous, not even one. Whoever keeps the entire law and offends on one point, and we all offend on many points, and and when you read the Sermon on the Mount, we've pretty much broken them all specifically. We have to use the right tool for the right job. And the purpose of the law is a mirror that shows us that our face is dirty, shows us that our life is dirty and our heart heart has sin. But you don't take the mirror off the wall to wash your face with it. That would be silly. It doesn't work. That's not the purpose of a mirror. The mirror is to show you what you look like. and And the law is to show us and reveal to us and to bring out our own sin. And why is this good? Because then we know what the problem is. And why is that good? Because it brings us to the solution, which is the last thing. The law leads to the gospel of Christ. The law brings us to the good news of Jesus Christ. The law provokes us and leads us and carries us to the solution to the resolution of sin. See, it would be wrong for us to just curse the darkness and say, well, this world is going to hell in a handbasket and look at all these sins and then not give the solution to that darkness. No, we're called to give the solution and not to just call out sin. And so he says in 10 and 11, all these sins and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, And the words, whatever else, brings Paul back to the the words of the false teachings where he said they're teaching other things. And he says, if there is any other thing here other than what comports with sound teaching, it is sin. Any attitude, any behavior, any thought, any teaching contrary to sound teaching is sin and sinful. Conviction of sin is good. It's a good function of the law. And one cannot be saved until they realize that they are lost. 
right? And sin convicts us of that. Jesus said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And he said later in the same chapter of Matthew 5, therefore you are to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. How are you doing with that? I'm not doing so good. So what do we do? We throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Sound teaching, he's going to use this phrase, one, two, three, I'm going to give them all, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times in the pastoral epistles. But it's according to sound teaching. The word sound means healthy, healthy teaching, not other teaching, not different teaching, mindless, useless, ongoing things, that that which has been given to us by Jesus and the apostles. So our lesson is this. The gospel heals. The gospel is healthy. The teaching given to us is healthy. Healthy teaching results in, in healthy Christians. I write these things so that one may know how he is to conduct himself in the household of God according to right teaching. Healthy teaching produces healthy Christians, which produces healthy churches. And he would say in chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, healthy words, healthy teaching, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's, that's, the, that's the, the banner. That's what defines healthy teaching. It came from Christ through the apostles. Anyone who doesn't agree with it or teach it, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, Paul said he's conceited and doesn't understand anything. So, the gospel reveals God's glory. That is the good news. The gospel reveals God's glory. He says, whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, I think a better translation is this. According to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel displays the glory of God. And the glory of God is what he is like, his attributes. And when you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, what does it reveal to us about God? That he is sovereign, that he is just, that he is holy, that he is loving, that he is compassionate and merciful, that he is gracious and forgiving. All of those things are the glory of God because that's who he is and that's what he is. And the gospel displays that. And that leads us to that place of good news. Paul would say in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And listen to verse 17 very carefully. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel itself we see the glory of the righteousness of God Revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, returning right to where we started at the beginning. The gospel, the law is good, and it is not a means of salvation. We are justified by faith. And he says, this blessed God has given to us the gospel. Paul was given the gospel, but the gospel is entrusted to us. We now have that trust. 
We have the stewardship of the good news. That means we cannot misuse God's word. We must cut it straight. We must handle it accurately. We must prepare and we must proclaim the word of God as was given through Christ and the apostles. We can't fiddle with it. We can't make it easier to understand. We can't make it palatable. We must preach it in all of its goodness. And as as Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John 16:8, he will come and he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the gospel. It's, it's about sin, it's about righteousness, and it's about judgment. The gospel is not ask Jesus into your heart and you'll have a groovy life. Not the gospel. Years ago, I had a young man when I was at my first Valley Bible Church in Idaho. A young man came to me from a town named, called Mackey. And he had grown up in the church up there, and he didn't know why his life was such a mess. And he said, I, you know, I grew up in the church, and I thought everything was going to be okay, and that God would bless me. And I said, well, tell me about how you came to Christ. And he said, well, I can't remember whether it was a, a children's club or whether it was VBS or whether it was Sunday school class. He said, they told me that if I asked Jesus into my heart, then everything would go well, and I would go to heaven. Do you hear the gospel in that at all? That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. In fact, he even said, and this is what he, what he actually said. He said, I thought when I said that prayer that I would see rainbows and bluebirds and butterflies. Seriously, he thought that's what life was going to be like. And I gave him the gospel, the true gospel in which he believed but he had been given a false gospel Valley Bible Church. We cannot twist the gospel. We cannot compromise it. We cannot teach a false gospel. The gospel must include sin and death and resurrection and grace and truth because that is the good news. That's the only way that people will find forgiveness and wholeness. The conclusion is this, this morning, and all we are saying this morning is this. The law is good, for it leads us to Christ. The proper use of the law is to reveal sin to sinners and to drive them to the gospel of grace for salvation. And it has, for you and for me, for those of us who have truly believed, that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Kidnapper? Man-stealer, homosexual, adulterer, stealer, perjurer, whatever. Such were some of us. God can forgive any sin. And if you think he can't forgive your sin, yes, he can. Confess it to him. Turn to him. Christ took care of it. You can't be saved by changing yourself anyway. We've seen that. It's only through Christ. One man whose life was changed was John Newton. We're going to sing. I'm going to ask the music Uh, team to come up. John Newton, you know the story, who wrote Amazing Grace. He was an 18th century British slave trader who was wonderfully converted to Christ and transformed by the grace of the gospel. In fact, he became a slave himself in West Africa for some time. Many people don't know that. But after coming to Christ, he realized the error of his ways and stealing people and kidnapping them and selling them was a horrible disgrace in sin, in blight, and he was wonderfully saved and wrote Amazing Grace. But he wrote a few other hymns as well, and one was called, In Evil Long I Took Delight. 
And this line says, with pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. We live by the one who took our guilt and our sin. It's an amazing grace that we have.